take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 12. Book of Romans chapter 12. We're in the midst of a 30-day experiment. 30 days to live, one month to live, and we are on the back end of that. We've only got a couple more weeks after this week of being involved, a few more days to read. And I don't know about you, but at the beginning of this uh, 30 days, one of the things that the book talked about and that I talked about is that when you begin to focus your life in living that way, that clarity can come to situations that you might not have had clarity before. And one of the things that has happened in my life as I've read and as I've studied and as I've studied for sermons, and we talked about uh, living the dash and living passionately and loving completely, and then this week I'm going to talk about, and you'll read about, learning humbly. As I've thought about that, I've really examined my life, examined who I am, examined what God is doing in my life, examined what I'm giving my time, my money, my attention to, and it is amazing to me how often I find that even as a pastor of a church, a man that God has called into the ministry, that I am seeking with all my heart to follow Him, that so many times I can let other things distract me from living for the Lord. This morning what we're going to talk about is that God intends for us to grow in Him. That He intends for us to learn continuously. That we are to be lifelong learners when it comes to understanding our walk with the Lord. A couple of times I've mentioned uh, Susan's mom and her final days and uh, some lessons that we learned as a family from that. And one of the things that was so impressive to me as I was um, preparing to do the graveside service for Miss Marilyn is I began to just ask some questions, as I would at almost any funeral that I do. And Phil and I were talking, and we had had some conversations. And I realized that one of the last things she did on this earth that she gave her time and energy to was that she did a Bible study. It's a Bible study by Beth Moore. In fact, it's a Bible study that will be offered starting tonight for women at 4.30. And it's about the Psalms of Ascent. It's an unbelievable study. I I looked through the book. I haven't done the study myself. But one of the things that so impressed me about Marilyn was even in her final days, when I opened up that book, there in her handwriting were things that God was teaching her. Now, I'll just be real honest with you. In the condition Marilyn was in with the amount of time that she knew she had, that God had kind of let her know that this, you know, we had prayed for healing and then we realized that healing was going to come in a way different than what we were praying for. It would have been very easily for her to throw up her hands and say, I quit. I give up. But as I looked through that book, there were time after time, and I didn't read the whole thing. It was almost like a personal journal, but I just was looking to where she had written, and she finished almost that entire book. In fact, what's interesting is the study, and if you're going to do the study, I'm going to give away the ending a little bit. I apologize. The study talks about that there are a set of psalms in the book of Psalms that were given to people that as they walked to the temple for worship, they would say these psalms in succession so that when they got to the temple, their hearts had been prepared for ultimate praise and worship. What is interesting about Marilyn is that the only days she did not complete in that study was the very last 
day. And what it said on the last day as I looked over that study was that it was all about giving ultimate praise to God. This is what I said at the graveside that day was that God used Marilyn's final days to prepare her for the time when she would experience total praise like she had never experienced before in the presence of her Savior. And he didn't have her do that last lesson because she was about to learn it firsthand. But this is what impressed me is that she was a learner literally her entire life. Now, in the Christian life, there are lots of things that God uses to teach us. There are lots of things that God can use in our lives to teach us how to grow and to be like Him. You know, sometimes people get this image that when we become a Christian, that things just ought to kind of work out like it should. Everything ought to be perfect. Everything ought to be great. Everything ought to be just uh, hunky-dory, to use a very technical term. In fact, I remember there was a very controversial movie a few years ago that kind of portrayed Christianity in a bad light. It was a movie called Pleasantville. And in the movie Pleasantville, this guy walks in, and he's wondering why all these people are, are so nice and, and good. And he's thinking about uh, the, the kind of the overtures is that the Christianity is holding back people from realizing their potential. But he walks into a basketball practice, and these Christians are making every shot. Now, I want to just assure you, I have seen most of you shoot. And I assume most of you are Christians, or at least the ones that are down here in the gym. You're not making every shot. But in the movie, they're making every shot. In fact, one guy even kicks one, and it goes in. And it's just the idea that everything ought to just smooth out and be good. I, I don't know about you, but that is not my experience with the Christian life. Amen? I mean, there are difficulties. There are good days, and there are hard days. And the truth is, Scripture teaches us that God uses all of that to make us into a son. In fact, we're going to look at Romans chapter 12 in just a minute because it tells us how we can become more like Christ, what the goal ought to be. But I just want to give you some other verses in Scripture that teach us that we ought to be learning continually, becoming like Him. Romans 8.29 out of the Living Bible says, From the very beginning God decided that those who came to Him and He knew who would should become like His Son. Now, there's a whole lot of question out there about predestination and all kinds of stuff that come out of this verse. But what I love about this verse is not all those questions, because the one thing that I know is that those of us who are Christian, that have asked Jesus Christ into our lives, that are ones that are following Him with all our heart, that are passionately devoted to seeking Him, that the Scripture says that the goal for us is that we become like His Son. In fact, Ephesians 4.15, now the message paraphrase says, God wants us to grow up like Christ in everything. God wants us to grow. Now here's what I know as I'm watching my children go and as I understand my own life as I grew, that growing is a process. And what I understand from watching my sons and, and understanding how my life has grown is that growth takes time. Amen? It takes time. Now, there are moments when I look at Eli and Luke, and day to day you don't see any changes, and then you'll turn around and you think, they just grew six inches overnight. You ever experienced that? I saw my parents last night for the first time in a few weeks, or actually Friday with the boys. They're in town staying with my brother for a couple of days, and we took the boys over there. My dad, who hadn't seen Luke or Eli in about a month, said, I swear they have grown. I missed it. And the truth is, in the Christian life, sometimes our growth 
It's kind of like the growth of children. There are moments and days and weeks of stagnation. And then all of a sudden, God will do something or will hear something or will find something and will grow in spurts. And what God intends for us is to learn from Him so that we might become like Him. Look at Romans chapter 12 with me. Because it tells us how we can become like Christ. Chapter 12 starts with the word, therefore. And as my seminary professor said, and as I've told you, that whenever in Scripture there is a therefore, you are to find out what it's there for. And the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are all a theological um, writing about what Christ has done for us, about who Christ is, about what He's done. It is a masterpiece of theology. And so you come to chapter 12, and it's like He is shifting gears. In fact, if you look up at the at right above chapter 12 in your Bibles, there's the end of chapter 11. And if you have the NIV or a newer version, it probably has that set apart because that is a doxology or a song. This very well may have been one of the first songs sung in churches. We know that the Romans probably took this as Paul wrote it and that he gave praise and that they used it in their worship. And he ends that and says, Glory to him be forever. Amen. And chapter 12 is, here's what we do about it. I urge you, brothers, in view of all that we talked about, God's mercy, God's wonderful mercy, that, that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, but that, and that the wages of sin is death, but through the gift of God He has given us eternal life, a free gift that comes in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, that in view of that, because of that, as a result of that, you are to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, I'm going to touch this a little bit on the end, but one of the things I want you to notice there is this interesting term of living sacrifices. I mean, the reality is they were very familiar with the system of sacrifices in that day, and one of the surefire understandings there was when you brought a sacrifice, in order to sacrifice, you had to kill it. Right? This means yes. Right. In order to sacrifice, you had to kill it. And so he says, you are a living sacrifice. Now, that's an interesting term. Because what it suggests is that there is part of us that we give everything to God one time. That in one sacrifice, we give it to God and God takes it and it's His. I read a story this week about a husband and wife. And the wife found out she needed a kidney. She needed a kidney transplant. Her kidneys were failing. And her husband offered to give her his kidney and it matched. So she got the kidney from her husband. Now, can you imagine two days later if the husband says, you know what, I think I want that kidney back. Wouldn't work that way, right? Once you gave it, it's, it's there. And there's a sense that when we give our life to the Lord, when we give ourselves to Him, that He takes it and it is His, and it is not something that He will ever be given back. But at the same time, it says it's a living sacrifice, right? Now, here's the interesting thing. A living sacrifice has the capability of crawling off the altar. And so what I would say to you is that what we're going to talk about today is there are many of you in this room who have given your life to Jesus, that you have accepted Him as your Savior, that that free gift of grace that He offered, you have accepted, and you are walking, attempting to walk with Him. But in your life, you have begun to detour a little bit. You have crawled off that altar. And while He has you and you are His completely, you are not walking completely in the path that you ought to. And maybe today it is time to crawl back up on that altar and say, God, here am I, whatever you want to do, I am 
ready, I am willing, and you are able. It says, offer your body as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. The word transformed there is an interesting word. It is the word we get metamorphosis from, the word that we get for a uh, the word that we describe a butterfly uh, changing from a caterpillar into a butterfly. The idea literally is to be changed from the inside out. You know what's interesting is if you look, if you look at the opposite word of that in the original language, the opposite word of being transformed from the inside out is a word that means to be transformed on the outside only. And what Christ says here is that we, Paul writes, that we are to be transformed from the inside out. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say, every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophecy, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. One of the things that we are going to talk about this morning is that transformation takes time, commitment, and a strategy. And what it tells us here in chapter 12 is that if we're going to be changed by Christ, then we've got to learn to crawl up on that altar and give ourselves to Him continually. And the only way that that works is to come to Him humbly and in weakness. On your handout and on the screen is going to be a pretty amazing verse of scripture it comes from the apostle paul and the apostle paul apparently had some sort of nagging difficulty i don't you know in the new testament in second corinthians it talks about the thorn in his side i don't know if literally there was a pain in his side i don't know if literally there was some kind of problem or if this is a spiritual emotional relationship problem i don't know what it is but it says right here that he asked him, or before this verse, it says, I asked God three times to take it away. I asked him three times to take this thorn away. And God's answer to Paul was, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. Here's the thing that I want you to notice out of this is, that Paul says that the only way that God can work through us, the only way that God's power really manifests itself in our lives is when we give ourselves to weakness. Now, just to be real honest with you, that's not what our culture preaches. I mean, especially for guys in here, the culture teaches we've got to be a man, we've got to be strong. As I've said before, in our house, when there's a noise in the middle of the night, Susan is not the one that is charged to get up out of the bed and go check it out, right? Now, again, I don't have a clue what I'd do if I got there and found something. The other day at our house, Susan called me. She had picked up the boys and went home, and 
And she said, Lyle, you've got to come home because our back door has blown open or somebody's in here. She got to the house. The door was open. Now, again, if I walked in and there was somebody taking my stuff, could you please stop that? Uh, Could you give me a second to go find something that I can use to deter you from doing that again? But there's this idea in our culture that we've got to take responsibility for ourselves. We've got to be our own man. You've got to be your own woman. You've got to be who you are. Be strong. Show no weakness. Show no vulnerability. And Paul says the greatest missionary of all time says that the only way that he can ever live as Christ called him to live is to live in weakness. Chapter 12 of Romans says that we are to give ourselves as a sacrifice. The picture I get of a sacrifice is one where you willingly lay down your life. Where you willingly say that I will give up all that I am in order that someone else will be in complete control. That you can have whatever I have. You can have my body, you can have my mind, you can have my soul, you can have my thoughts, you can have my desires, you can have my wants, you can have my wishes, you can have my needs. God, I give every bit of it to you. I am nothing. And I believe that when we lay ourselves on that altar, when we give ourselves to God, when we surrender like that, give up all of our pride and and all of our thoughts of who we are, then God will begin to work. In fact... Verse 3 of chapter 12 has this interesting thing. For the by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Now this is an interesting verse, because it tells us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. You know, it is pretty easy for me to pick out somebody that thinks of themselves more highly than they ought to. Amen? Can you see that trait in other people? Well, he sure does think a lot of himself. He thinks we don't know who he really is. Pick that out in somebody else. It's not so easy to do that in yourself. Now, here's the interesting thing. I think this goes two ways. And on one hand, we can obviously think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. That we can be delusional about who we are, about our grandeur. I read this week about an illustration that somebody said that if you want to see how important you are, pour a bucket of water. Take your right hand, roll up your sleeves, put your hand down into the bucket of water all the way up to your elbow, and then pull it out and see what kind of mark you leave. Now that water's going to rush back in, right? And within minutes you may see some ripples, but you're not going to see a big imprint. And they say, apart from what Christ can do in you, just think that your life is like that hand in the water. And so we're not as important as we think. Now, on the other side of that, we can do too much and think, well, I'm nobody, I'm nothing. The truth is that you were loved enough by God that he gave his life for you. But what we must understand is it's not because, as we sang this morning, of who we are or what we've done. It's because of who he is and what he's done that we're important. And when we lay ourselves on that altar, I think there are three things that we have to do to take the steps to let God work in our lives. 
really the reality is that this whole process of transforming us, changing us, is not something we do on our own. It is something that God does in us. It is something the Holy Spirit does within us. But we must make ourselves available. And there are three ways that we can do that. Those are listed on your handout, and we're going to walk through them this morning. The first thing is we must learn from our losses. We must learn from our losses. You know, sometimes in life we think when we have failures that it must be something wrong with us or that there must be something terrible going on, that God would never use that, God would never allow that. But the truth is that God often allows failures in our lives in order for us to see who He is. We all make mistakes, amen? We all have problems. We all make things that are just ridiculous boneheaded statements, boneheaded decisions, we all do it. And the question is not whether are we going to do it or not. The question is, are we going to learn from it? Sometimes in our lives, God allows more losses than others. Maybe we need to learn something more than other times. I watched a football game last night. By the way, I apologize to all you Vanderbilt fans out there because three weeks ago I finally admitted I was rooting for them, and they haven't won since. I apologize. I watched a football game last night, and about halfway through the game, after I texted Jake and asked him if Alabama was now paying off the refs and the recruits, uh, it's a joke, maybe. I realized why I was so frustrated. And I was frustrated. My, my wife and children are in Jackson with my father-in-law. Uh, one of my relatives is getting baptized today, and so they're there uh, with watching that, being a part of that. So I was by myself and able to vent like I'm not usually able to vent. Nothing is broken that I remember. It's because it doesn't seem like that team, you know, I'm not even calling them their name anymore. That team doesn't learn anything from the way they've lost in the past. And as I started to get really upset about that and think about that, I pulled out my notes to look over before I go to sleep, as I usually do on Saturday night, and God just hit me in the middle of the head. And he says, you know what frustrates me sometimes? You don't learn anything from the losses you've had. You see, God wants us to learn from where our losses are. But one of the greatest stories of this in Scripture is the Apostle Peter, right? Peter, as I've described before, is the Apostle that always... It seems like he was born with his foot in his mouth. He always said things that that weren't quite right. He always did things that you go, Peter, what are you doing? And on the night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus washes his feet. He gets to Peter, and Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. You're not going to do that. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then you're not going to be with me in the kingdom. And Peter says, if you're going to wash my feet, give me a bath if that's going to help. He says, no, Peter, that's it. And Peter, he's talking around the table, and he says, one of you will betray me, and I'm about to go and be killed. And Peter says, Lord, I would never let that happen. They, they can Whatever they're going to do, I would give my life, Jesus, before I would let anybody kill you. And Jesus just looks at him and says, Peter, before the day is over, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. On your handout is... Luke 22, obviously not verse 61 through 21. That'd be kind of crazy, but it's in Luke 22 somewhere. You've got Bibles, you can find it sometime. Luke 22 says, 
the Lord turned. This is after the rooster crowed. This is after Peter made his big mistakes. He looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Now you want to talk about a guy that messed up. Here is Peter, the very guy that had been the right-hand man of Jesus, the one that had said, I would die for you and he, three times. In fact, the last time he gets so mad that, that they, they used the word cursed, but that means he said a bunch of words he shouldn't say. And he was around the fire and somebody says, I don't even, he said, I don't even know him. Never been around him. I don't know who that Jesus is. And what he implies in that statement is not just that he doesn't know him. What he means is, I don't want to be associated with him. I don't want you to think I'm around him. And more importantly than that, what he's doing in his denial is giving credence to what's happening to him. He doesn't say, I don't know him, but I think what they're doing is wrong. He just says, I don't know him. And as he says that, and the rooster crows, and he looks over and he sees Jesus, Jesus looks at him. And I don't know what Jesus' eyes were like, but from what I can see in Scripture is, they were the most penetrating eyes that ever existed. And he looked right into the soul of Peter. And Peter messed up. You know, you can look throughout Scripture, and some of the greatest people in Scripture were people that messed up. Badly. David was an adulterer and a murderer. He was a guy that lived with him for a period of time until somebody finally confronted him and gave him a story about someone stealing and taking advantage. And he says, that man should be killed. And the prophet looks at him and says, you are that man. Noah, great, great Noah, was a guy that after the ark was finished and after he'd seen God do miraculous things, after he'd seen God do things that God had never done before. And he was a part of that, and he was saved out of it. He gets out of the boat, and then just within a short period of time, Noah falls into sin. Abraham was a guy that's the father of three major religions and the father of our faith, the man that we trace a lot of stuff back to. And Abraham says that as he's walking through some things, you know what, I'm worried that the king will be too attracted to my wife. I'm going to lie that she's my sister. Tell a half-truth. Over and over and over again in Scripture, we see people that mess up royally. And the reality is, God doesn't expect us to live perfect lives because He knows we won't. But He does expect from us the ability to learn from our losses, to learn from our mistakes. Now, what He expected from Peter in this time was the mistake had been made. It was time to move on. There are two steps that must happen in your life if God is going to use you and you're going to learn from your losses. First of all, you must take responsibility for what you've done. We are the most blaming generation that has ever lived. It's always somebody else's fault. I don't know if you've seen or not, but the stock market's not doing too well. Anybody seen that? You aware of that? There's little, little problems, you know. Just half of what it was a couple of months ago. It's, I'm sure there's some ramifications out there about all that. What's interesting to me is nobody wants to take any blame for any of it. I don't care what side of the political fence you're on. It's somebody's fault. Amen? It's somebody's. And here's the reality. 
It's politicians' fault, both sides of the aisle. They both voted on things. It's banks' fault because they gave out loans they shouldn't give out. Here's an idea. It's the people that got the loans' fault because they shouldn't have gotten loans they couldn't pay for. I mean, there's a whole wide variety of people's that's faults are, but all everybody wants to talk about is it's somebody else's fault. You know, one of my favorite terms in, uh, it's not favorite, one of the most interesting terms, because I don't like it, is this term that people can, can have for when they feel like that their marriage isn't going to work, that they say they have a no-fault divorce. You heard that term? Well, here's the reality. And I know that some of you in this room have experienced the horrors of divorce. You've been through that. God still loves you. God still cares about you. Don't hear me saying anything differently. But the reality is marriages don't just break apart without somebody having some fault. And one of the biggest hindrances from you growing into the person Christ wants you to grow into is that you won't take responsibility for your own shortcomings and your failings. And Peter had to take responsibility. There's that beautiful scene after the resurrection when they're sitting around eating breakfast and Jesus is cooking breakfast for him and Peter is sitting there and Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? And each time he responds to him, and while we see what's obviously there, it is obvious to me, as you read between the lines, that what Jesus is asking him there is just to own up to what he did. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three. How many times did Jesus ask Peter if he loved him? Three. And it was an obvious admission of the responsibility that had to be taken. You know, I think that the beginning of that responsibility started at the end of this verse. It says he went outside and he wept bitterly. Immediately he knew he had messed up. And he didn't try to cover it up and say, well, so did John or so did Mark or where were all these people? I didn't do it as bad as so-and-so did it. And none of the disciples were around. What we see here is he just took responsibility. Proverbs 28:13 on your handout says, A man who refuses to, his, to admit his mistakes can never be successful. But if he confesses and forsakes them, he gets another chance we talked last week about relationships and one of the things that i am confident is one of the most difficult parts of any relationship is that we have hard times admitting when we're wrong amen i mean how many of you have a spouse that doesn't admit when they're wrong i mean (laughs) how many of you aren't going to raise your hand on that question no matter what i say there we go. That was kind of a trick question, wasn't it? I put my hand up. Here's the reality. We, we have a hard time. I have a hard time saying when I'm wrong. I, I still remember a, a discussion Susan and I got into over a very trivial thing. But the discussion escalated because I would not admit that I was wrong. And about halfway through the discussion, you know what? I knew I was wrong. Anybody ever been there? Yeah. I knew it. But then it became about damage control. How can I get out of this without somehow admitting that I was completely wrong? And what happens in our relationship with God is, here's the reality, He's never wrong. 
but even we have a hard time admitting to him sometimes that we are. So we must take responsibility. And here's the thing. When we take responsibility, when we confess that sin, when we confess we have that need, when we admit our shortcomings, when we admit our failings, when we admit our part in the failure, then God will forgive us. And the second thing that has to happen if we're going to learn from our losses is we must let go. We must let go of my guilt. Mark 16, 7 is one of my absolute favorite verses in all of Scripture. It's in the NIV translation there on your uh, handout. But I, I just love it. And it's because of two words that are in there. It says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, here's the thing. This is an angel telling these two that have come to the tomb, go back, tell the disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you. They'll see him. Go let them know. What I love is, how many disciples were there? Twelve. At this time, there were 11 because one had excused himself from that group. And so you have 11 there. Which disciple is singled out? Which disciple? Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. What I love is this picture I have in my mind of God, Jesus, as this whole process is working out. And they know what's going to happen. They understand what's happening two days ahead. The angels, as they look down and they're watching this drama play out, as God is giving them parts to play in the midst of it, as they're watching everything unfold, and throughout heaven there's this understanding that what's about to happen is the greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. And there is one guy more than any other that needs to be a first hand witness to what has happened because he's feeling terrible right now and it is time to lift him back up, bring him back to who he is and push him forth in order for him to be the great man of God he is supposed to be. Angels, when you go down there and tell them that Jesus is raised again, make sure they get Peter. Now I know that some of us grew up in churches, some of us have heard sermons before that go on and on and on about the seriousness of our sin and how important it is to admit our sin and how terrible of people we are. And I want to tell you right now, sin is terrible. Sin is horrible. It is an affront to God. It is incompatible with the holiness of God. It is not something to be watched over. It's not something to be talked lightly of. It's not something to talk about in light terms. But let me tell you this. What I know about my God is that His grace and His mercy and His love is so much greater than any sin that I can commit that even though it is very serious, I serve a God who wants to restore me more than He wants to condemn me. What happens here with Peter is he says, go get Peter. It's almost as if I can see the angels on the edge of their seats looking over their clouds. I know that's probably not actually correct, that they're probably not sitting on clouds. But whatever they're sitting on, they're looking. And as they're looking, they're just waiting for Peter to be restored. Can I tell you something today? There are some of you in this room that are struggling mightily with some sin that's in your life. Nobody else may know about it. Nobody else may be privy to the details of it. The reality is it's a secret sin or it's a sin that only a couple of people talk about and you've dealt with it for a while and you're tired of it. And perhaps you've even given it over to the Lord and said, God, I want to be done with it. I don't want to do it anymore. I want you to take responsibility. We're going to talk in just a minute about how we plug into that. But let me just suggest to you that there are some of you here today that the biggest step you need to take is you need to let go of your guilt. If you have asked Jesus to forgive you of our sins, here's the reality. He has forgiven you of your sins. 
I came across this story by Joshua Harris. It's called The Room. Joshua Harris says that he dreamed he found himself in a room and there was no distinguishing features except for one wall covered with small index card files. Without being told, I knew exactly where I was. This lifeless room with these small files was a crude catalog system of my whole life. Here was written the actions of every moment, big and small, in detail my memory could match. The titles ranged from the mundane to the outright weird. There were books I have read, lies that I have told, comfort I have given, jokes I have laughed at, a lot of things I wasn't proud of, like things I've done in anger, people that I've judged, things that I've muttered under my breath. When I came to a file marked lustful thoughts, I just felt a chill run through my body. I drew out a card and I shuddered at its detailed content. I felt sick at the such a moment had been recorded and one thought dominated my mind. No one must ever read these cards. No one must ever come into this room. I have to destroy them. I became desperate and pulled out a card to destroy it only to find it is as strong as steel when I tried to tear it. Defeated and hopeless, I returned the file to its slot and then the tears came. I fell on my knees and I cried. I cried out of shame from the overwhelming shame of it all. But then as I pushed away the tears, I saw him. There was Jesus reading each card. I couldn't bear to watch his response. And in the moments I could bring myself to look at his face, I saw sorrow deeper than my own. Starting at the end of the room, he took out a file and one by one, he began to read the cards. Then I noticed something. He wasn't just reading the cards. He was writing something on them. He was taking out each file, looking at them one by one, and then he was signing his name over mine on the card. In fact, he was writing it where you no longer could see what was written on the card, and it was written in red as if his blood was covering it. I don't think I'll ever understand how he did it so quickly, but the next instant it seemed I heard him close the last file and walk to my side. He placed his hand on my shoulder and he said, It is finished. Stood up. He led me out of the room. There was no lock on the door. There were still blank cards that had to be written on. When you come to understand that we all make mistakes, the second things that we must do is admit what we do wrong and then we must let go of the guilt. Here's the second step if we're going to follow God and put ourselves in position to follow Him is we must surrender to God's strength. What it says here in chapter 12 of the book of Romans is that we lay our bodies on this this altar of sacrifice and we give ourselves to Him. We are saying that in our own power, we can no longer do it. That we must tap into the power source. That we must be willing to do what God calls us to do. And that we have power to live only in Him. Here's something else I've discovered in my time. Maybe you've discovered this. Is that I get tired. Anybody else out there get tired? I get tired. If I stay up too late, I get tired. If I go up too early, I get tired. But here's another reality. I don't just get tired physically. I get mentally, emotionally, spiritually tired. Anybody ever been in one of those moments when you just feel like, I I don't have the strength to go on another day? The reality is that in our own strength and our own abilities, we could never be able to live as God wants us to live. And what we must do is we must tap in to the very strength of God in order for Him to give us the power to live. Luke 9, 23, that's on your handout, says that 
He said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. The idea there is not that we can do it on our own. The idea is that we must give our lives completely to him, tap into his strength and let him live through us. Some of you right now are in a situation where your relationships or your work or uh, your church life or your, your just general parenting life, whatever your life is, something's going on that you think, I don't know how I'm going to make it. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I can't do it anymore. Let me just suggest that you turn it over to him. Now, that doesn't mean you resolve all, absolve all responsibility. It just means that you give it over to him. We must surrender to his strength. And then here's the last thing. And this is what verses 3 through 8 is really about. We must pursue God's path. We must pursue God's path. Here's the reality. Once we get past the point where we admit our mistakes, we let go of the guilt, we let God take care of that. Once we tap into the strength that only God can provide, then we must follow Him wherever He chooses to lead. Wherever He chooses to lead. Verse 3 and following tell us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And then it talks about this whole thing about spiritual gifts. Let me just suggest to you that I want you to think of spiritual gifts in a different way. What I love about this passage of Scripture is he just tells us it doesn't give a list of gifts. This is not all-encompassing. But what it's telling us is whatever God has gifted us to do, we need to do it for Him and for His sake according to His plan and His path. Verse 6, I love, it says we have different gifts. Here's the reality. I am confident enough in our God and His creativity that as I look out across this congregation today, that every person in here has a unique set of gifts from God. That you are uniquely created. That you are your own person. And because of that, I don't think that we can fit ourselves in any particular gift list. Have you ever taken one of those gift assessment things? I'm not about to pass one out if you hadn't. It's all right. Some of you have. And you write down, it's really a personality test. At the end it tells you, you have the gift of mercy. Well, that's good. What does that mean? I don't think that's the way God intended it. What I think God intends is when you come and you lay yourself on the altar, what you're saying is, God, I give you everything I am to use for your glory and your sake. I told the deacons a few weeks ago, and we're in the process of deacon elections, and you'll be hearing about that in the next few days. And one of the things that I told the deacons last year as we were doing a training time or in the past year is that what I fear is that we make a list of things deacons ought to do, then we get a group of people and we say, okay, here you are, you've got to fit this. And I fear in church sometimes we say, here's our list of jobs. Here you are. Find a job that you fit into. And what I think God intends for us to do is not that, but what God intends for us to do is say, here you are, the unique, creative person that I have made you. What is it that you do best? What is it that you excel at? How in the world can you make that be a ministry in the church? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about living our passion. And one of the things that has happened in churches far too often is we look at people and we say, I'm glad you've got a passion for that, but we don't have a place for that here. Find something you're not really passionate about and do that. You know what? I hear you're excited over here about that particular ministry, but we don't have a spot right now for that ministry. 
You see, we have a committee of seven people, and that rotates every three years. And as we get off of that committee, maybe in a couple of years, there'll be a spot for you to find on that committee if you'll let the committee on committees know that when it comes time for them to do their selection two years from now, that you'd like to be on that committee. But here's a committee you have absolutely no interest in, but would be a good place for you to start. God's path, I think, is much broader than we can ever imagine. And what he's calling us to do is to use everything in the way he's made us to live for him. Let me tell you three steps that often come in pursuing God's path. And this comes from Kerry Shook, the guy that wrote the book. He says that oftentimes in Scripture and in the lives of great Christians he's met, there are three things that happen. First of all, there's the call. That we're called to ministry, we're called to live, we're called to do something great for the Lord. We're called to do something extraordinary for Him. We hear the call and we set out to go. We go to do it. We go to live it. We go to be that way. We're passionate about it. But the second thing that happens is somewhere in the midst of that, we hit the wall. That's the second thing. You know, marathon runners tell me that that uh, when they run the marathon or the half marathon, that there's always that point in the run that is the wall. Now, marathon runners, I think it's around 19 to 20 miles, that if you make it through that 19th to the 20th mile, then you're going to make it to the end of the race. All I know is when I was in when high school, when I was in middle school, that when we had to run a mile, my, my wall came about half a mile. You know, it wasn't 20 miles. It's like half a mile. I think, whew, I'm not going to make this. And you know what the wall is. If you've ever run those long-distance races, if you've ever lived uh, your life at trying to do something important, that there comes a point where your, your, your side hurts, your leg hurts, your, you, you just think, I just want to give up. I want to start walking. I want to slow down. I, I just can't do it anymore. And in living the life of the Lord, you're going to be excited. And there are going to be moments of real excitement in your life. And you're going to set out to do something for the Lord. And in the midst of that, in the midst of that call, there's going to come some barrier in your life, some problem that will arise, and it will be the wall that you either have to crash through or you're going to stop. And what Carrie Shook says is after the call and after the wall comes the fall. And you have two choices. You can either fall away or fall back. Or the second choice is you can fall on your knees, admit your need, and walk more closely with the Lord than you ever have. This morning on the way in, driving in, I was had it on the radio, and uh, Dr. Jerry Vines was preaching. And I only caught about three minutes of the sermon, but he was talking about Job. And he talks about in Job's life, there was this real, and he didn't use these words, but there was this real call from the Lord that he was to live like he was supposed to. But not because of anything he had done. There comes a wall when Satan comes and he tests Job. And he takes away his family and he, he takes away his wealth. He takes away all of that. And then Satan comes back and he attacks his health. And he's got boils from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. Painful boils. Boils that probably, we're not real sure what they were, but they probably didn't smell good. He probably wouldn't be touched. People wouldn't come around him. He's got all this stuff going on. And there his wife is. And it tells us in Job that his wife says to him, it's always good to have a supportive wife, amen? His wife says to him, Job, look at all that's happened to you. Why don't you just curse God and die? You know, it's been said before that behind every successful man is a very surprised wife. She says, Job, just curse God and die. And what I love is Job's response because he stands firm for the Lord. Even if he slays me, yet I will praise him. If you're going to grow in the Lord, there are three things that are going to happen. You have to admit and learn from your losses. 
You're going to have to plug into the power strength that is the Lord, and then you're going to have to follow His path, using your gifts, doing what God calls you to do. And this morning, I know that most of you in this room are people that accepted the Lord a long time ago. And you've been trying to live for Him, but, but sometimes things just don't work out like you think. And this morning, perhaps the Lord is trying to get your attention. Growing up, my grandparents used to, on road trips I would take with them, would make me listen to a guy named Ray Stevens. May ever heard of Ray Stevens? One particular song that he sang that I always kind of liked, although I never admitted that to them. It was the Mississippi Squirrel Revival song. Anybody know that song? It's about a kid in Pascagoula, Mississippi, that has a squirrel in church one day. I do not recommend this for future church visits. And he was showing it off to his good buddy Hugh, and the squirrel got loose. And as Ray Stevens sings in the song, that, that things kind of began to get a little crazy, chaotic. It said that in the midst of the invitation song, the squirrel caught up old Harv Newman's overalls. Larve leapt to his feet and said, something's got a hold on me. As he fell to his knees and pleaded to beg, the squirrel ran out of his breeches leg, unobserved to the other side of the room. The chorus of that song says that day the squirrel went berserk in the first self-righteous church, that sleepy little town of Pascagoula. Some of you know it. thought you'd help me out there, but obviously not. It was a fight for survival that broke out in revival. There were jumping pews and shouting hallelujah. When you get to the last stanza, it's kind of one of those sing-talk stanzas where he kind of talks it. He says, well, seven deacons got saved that day, and $25,000 got raised, and 50 volunteered for missions in the Congo on the spot. And even without an invitation, there was at least 500 rededications, and we all got rebaptized, whether we needed it or not. Now, I want to tell you real quickly, I don't think the Lord's going to set a squirrel loose in here today to get your attention. But there's an interesting part of that. It says there was at least 500 rededications, and we all got rebaptized, whether we need it or not. We're not going to do rebaptism because I think it's a sacred thing. But here's the thing. Sometimes people get upset with rededications. Some pastors will say, you don't need to rededicate. You give your life once to the Lord. When you give your life once to the Lord, that's a one-time commitment. And that's true. But I just know from personal experience in my life, there are many times that I crawl off that altar on my own. And while I don't ever doubt my salvation is secure, bless you the assurance, Jesus is mine. I never doubt that. I know that there are times when I'm not living like I ought to for Him. And perhaps this morning and this month as we've been reading this stuff and as we've been talking about those sins, we've been talking about giving your life to the Lord, we've been talking about using your spiritual gifts, this morning as you're here you think it is time for me to surrender again to Him. To give my life to the Lord, to admit that I'm not living as I ought to live, to take this moment to come and to commit my life afresh and anew. I know that I've been saved. I know that the Lord has has already saved me, already secured me, already bought me with His blood. But today I'm coming to say, Lord, this day I give my life to You. I surrender all that I am. I lay myself on that altar, Lord, for whatever You want to do. And this morning, perhaps there are some things that you need to admit to, you need to own up to with the Lord. Perhaps there's some guilt you need to let go of. Perhaps there's some burdens you need to lay at the feet of Jesus and say, God, here it is, you take it, I need your strength. Perhaps there are some things that you need to do in your life that you say, I'm not living for the Lord, I'm not following His path, and I've got to get some things right. This morning is a time for you.
to surrender again. 